It is a joy to be gathered here this evening for this occasion, and it's a joy to stand before you this evening as we look into God's Word. I was recently impressed again with the richness of God's Word. God's Word is sometimes referred to as a road map, and personally, I enjoy maps. I enjoy looking at maps. There's so much that you can learn by looking at maps. Now, formerly, maps were made out of paper that showed only a limited area, were hard to fold and clumsy to store. Now we have the advantage of digital maps. And one of the advantage of a digital map is that you can zoom out to get the big picture and you can zoom in to get the close up. For example, I can zoom in on home. I can zoom out and zoom in on your home or someone else's home. And in this way, it's a, it's a good way to make comparisons, to compare different parts of the world or different parts of the community. Now, considering that this is a communion service, our focus naturally goes to the work of Christ. Um, I guess it was about a week and a half ago at our council meeting, Norman referred to the phrases, we see Jesus and looking on to Jesus. And that's what we want to do this evening. I want to zoom in on certain aspects of his life. But I would also like to zoom out and zoom in on another portion of the Bible and make a comparison because I found that the comparisons are interesting. Now what I would like to share with you this evening is not something that I've concocted. What I plan to show with you, I plan to look at a lot of verses from the Bible, zooming in and zooming out, and just simply comparing verses as we do this. And it's, it's what the Bible says. It's something that I've found very fascinating. Normally, when we look at the life of Christ, we go to one of the Gospels. We have the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, and the Gospel according to John. This evening, I want to look at a picture of Christ found in the Old Testament, and the title of the message this evening is The Gospel According to Daniel. Now, perhaps that's a new thought to you. It was a new thought to me as well, as we zoom in and zoom out and look at these two comparisons. Now, I was first introduced to this comparison in a little booklet written by a man by the name of Thomas Sarlow. But I found it a fascinating study, and over the last couple of weeks I've been looking at this and comparing uh, these two accounts and found many comparisons. Now we consider Daniel as a book of prophecy, but we generally think of the first six chapters of Daniel as history and the last six chapters as prophecy. And this evening we want to look at Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is a historical account, and it's the account of Daniel in the lion's den. And we want to highlight some comparisons between this account and the account, the historical account of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, I believe we will find that Daniel chapter 6 is not only history, but it's also prophecy. So in this account, or in this chapter, we read the account we refer to as Daniel in the lion's den. And in this account, as well as in the life of Christ, as you work through the account, there is just this, this um, increasing level of, of tension and suspense building up as the enemies try to devise a plan to destroy the chosen one. And they appear to be successful. 
it appears like their plan is working, only to result in the chosen one's ultimate victory. So we're going to be looking, like I said, um, at the life of Daniel and the life of Christ. I'll be referring to a lot of the verses, and I'm planning to project those verses here, otherwise it would take a lot of flipping back and forth. And um, I'm going to try to uh, move through these quite rapidly. I have 19 comparisons I would like to look at between Daniel chapter 6 and the life of Christ. So let's go to number one. Both of these men were preferred above their peers. Daniel chapter 6, verse 3. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes. In the New Testament, John chapter 1, 15. John bare witness of him, Jesus, and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred above me or before me. So both of these men were preferred above their peers. And it's interesting, if you look at that word a little bit, the word preferred is used only three times in the New Testament. The first time, it refers to Jesus. The second time, it refers to Jesus. And the third time, it refers to Jesus. Jesus is not only a preferred person, he is the preferred person. Preferred above his peers, just like Daniel. Second comparison. They were both empowered by the Spirit of God within them. And all these verses from Daniel are from chapter 6 in this account. And uh, just kind of moving through the chapter. In chapter 6, verse 3, it tells us that Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes. Why? Because an excellent spirit was in him. And I remember Aidan Troyer preaching a sermon on this verse. And, and emphasizing the fact that excellent meant something which excelled. And he was, he was um, promoting the idea that the spiritual part of Daniel was excelling above the physical part. But it was the spirit of God within him. And I think it's very clear as we look at the, at the life of Daniel that there was no way he could do all the things that he did in his own strength. The spirit of God was upon him and empowered him to live as he did, just as it was with Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, it talks about when Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue, and he stood up, he opened a book, and he began reading. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are proved. Like Daniel, Jesus did not carry on his ministry in human strength. Yes, Jesus was human, but he did not depend on human strength to carry on his ministry. It was the power of the Spirit of God that enabled him to live and to die and to rise as he did. Third comparison, number three. Both of these men were given a position of preeminence. Also, in chapter 6, verse 3, it says, The king thought to set him, Daniel, over the whole realm, giving him a place of preeminence. In Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it tells us that God set Jesus far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. 
and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Now note in this verse that it says that the king thought to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. That was his intention. Now we know that Daniel was taken out of his homeland, taken into a land of captivity. But in that land of captivity, the king's intention was to give him this place of preeminence. And just like Daniel, Jesus left his homeland. He left the ivory palaces of glory, was brought to earth. Where he was living, you might say, captive in a human body in a hostile land. And even though he was facing the harshest this world could throw at him, the king of the universe had a plan. He had an intention. And that plan was to elevate Jesus to the Lord of the earth. And we know that nothing could or will thwart that plan of God. Moving on to the fourth comparison. The adversaries appear on the scene. The antagonist in this story, in this plot. The ones who bring on the conflict. Then the president and princes, presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel. And again, as I look at this comparison, I found it amazing how many comparisons there were almost word for word between Daniel and Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verse 55 says the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. Note that for both of these men, the adversaries were jealous. They did not like the favored one that was chosen. They wished to cast charges against them, and they desperately sought to find some fault in these men. They wished to get rid of them. They, they were looking for faults, but try as they might, there was no fault to be found in either of these men. Now, there's not too many men in the Bible besides Jesus that the Bible says there was no fault found in that man. There's a few that the Bible indicates. Talks about Job, he was upright, and a few others maybe. Daniel was one of those. It says these princes could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Does that remind you of a verse from the New Testament? What did Pilate say when he observed the life of Jesus? I find no fault in him. You see, both of these men were carefully watched by their adversaries. They watched their public lives. They watched their private lives. They watched them every way they could. But they found nothing. In the epistles, Peter and Paul and John and the writer of Hebrews, who may have been Paul, all specified that Jesus was without sin. No fault found in him. Well, the story continues. The sixth comparison. Their enemies, both the enemies of Daniel and of Jesus, resorted to finding fault in the religion of these men. They could find no moral fault. They could find no civil fault. So they resorted to the religious law. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 5, these men agreed, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They were looking to the laws of his religion. 
So what did the people in Jesus' day do? What did the priests do? What did the Pharisees do? What did the Sadducees do? They did exactly the same thing. They went to the law. And there's many examples of that. In John chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, this was the account where they brought uh, the woman found in adultery to Jesus. And they came with this question, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. You see, they went back to the law, to the laws of their religion. And there are many, many more examples as well. Um, in one case, it says there was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him. Now, a lawyer is not what we think of as today, someone with a degree in civil law, but it was simply an expert in the law, an expert in the law of Moses. This was someone who knew the law, and he was trying to, to corner him in the law. And there were examples of Pharisees and Sadducees both questioning him uh, different times. So Jesus and Daniel were both recognized as righteous men. They were not able to be con condemned by their evil deeds. So their enemies, like I said, tried to condemn them by their adherence to the law. Well, even this they found to be a challenge. Their enemies resorted to lying to accomplish their evil, attention, evil intentions. Were you aware that the presidents and princes lied about Daniel? It may not be so obvious, but it's interesting. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 7, this is when the presidents and princes came to the king and they said, all the presidents of our kingdom have consulted together. Well, who were the presidents? Daniel was one of them. Do you think Daniel was involved in this consultation? Obviously not. He would not have been very likely to have conspired against himself. And I think he would have been even less likely to conspire against the law of his God. So when they said all the presidents have consulted together, that was a falsehood. What about the example of Jesus? Mark chapter 14, verses 55 and 56. And the chief priests and all the council. There again, you see the same word. All the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bore false witness against him. They resorted to telling lies. They could find nothing in his character. They could find nothing in the law. So they resorted to telling lies. And one of the lies they told about Jesus, they went on to say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another. Now, did Jesus say that? Let's look at what Jesus said. He did not say, the scripture does not record that he said that he would destroy this temple made with hands. The Bible clearly specifies that he was referring to this temple, referring to the temple of his body. So just as in the days of Daniel, they resorted to lying. Why? Because they were fighting against the truth, Jesus himself. So, the plot thickens. The antagonists build their case. Where were Daniel and Jesus in both of these accounts? Were they kind of, were they going to be caught off guards? Were they going to be taken by surprise? No. Daniel and Jesus both knew what was taking place. In verse 10 of chapter 6, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing 
was signed. He knew what was taking place. Did Jesus know? Well, of course he knew. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, and the account goes on. You see, these men were not blindsided by something they did not know. They were not caught off guard. They knew what was happening. And even though they knew what was happening, they both made a conscious decision to proceed. Daniel did it because he knew it was right. Jesus did it because he knew it was necessary. And he did it because of his love. He did it because of his love for you and me. It did not catch him by surprise. Sometimes we hear interesting quotes from children or people who have affection for each other. I love you this much, and they give some flowery description. I saw a poster one time that said, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And Jesus said, I love you this much. And he stretched out his arms, and he died for me. Jesus was not blindsided. He knew what was coming. But how could he proceed? Jesus and Daniel were looking ahead in anticipation. Verse 10 says, talking about Daniel, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He looked toward Jerusalem. Luke 9.51 talks about Jesus. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see this, this interesting comparison just continues throughout this passage. Now, why did Daniel look toward Jerusalem? Well, he was looking forward to the day when his people could return to the holy city of Jerusalem. That was the city of his origins. And I think he was looking forward to returning to that city. I think just like Nehemiah, returning to the city of his people was foremost in, on Daniel's mind. I think, it, I think it just consumed his thinking. Three times every day, he set his gaze toward Jerusalem. And I don't think he was just looking about the past. I think he was looking into the future. He was anticipating the day when they could return to Jerusalem. Jesus, too, as he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, he was looking beyond the present. He was looking into the future. Jesus knew what was ahead, but he was looking beyond what was ahead. He was looking beyond Gethsemane. He was looking beyond the betrayal of Judas, walking up to him and giving him a kiss. He was looking beyond the Jewish council, that council throughout the night. He was looking beyond being spit upon and slapped in the face. He was looking beyond standing before Pilate in the judgment hall while Peter was outside denying him. He was looking beyond the scourging and the crown of thorns. He was looking beyond Calvary and those cruel nails that held him to the cross and the taunting and dying the most brutal, ruthless death known to man. I think Jesus was looking 2,000 years beyond that, into the future. I think Jesus was looking into a community in southeastern Pennsylvania, into the Weavertown community. He was looking into the Byler home, into the Fisher home, 
into the king home, into the weaver home, and every other home represented here this evening. In his infinite wisdom, he knew that what was awaiting him in Jerusalem and what the, the people that were to appear 2,000 years later were connected. And not only that, but he was looking ahead to the new Jerusalem, just like Daniel was looking ahead to the, what would be the new Jerusalem to him. And he knew that these events were all connected. So he steadfastly set his face to move forward, and nothing was going to stop him. Comparison number 10. Daniel and Jesus both knelt and prayed three times. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Did the fact that Daniel ever knelt and prayed three times ever catch your attention? When you read that, have you ever thought of anyone else who knelt and prayed three times? What do you think Daniel prayed as he was kneeling there? We see pictures in children's books of Daniel kneeling with his hands folded and a serene, calm look on his face, with his face turned heavenward. I wonder if there wasn't more agony in Daniel's prayer than what those pictures indicate. What was he praying? This verse says that he gave thanks, but I don't think that's all he did. Verse 11 says the man found him praying and making supplication before God. Maybe he was making supplication for his people to return to, to Jerusalem. Maybe he was making supplication for his own safety in the days to come. I can imagine what my cry would have been had I been in Daniel's place. God, is this how I'm going to die? I don't deserve this. I was faithful to you as a youth. I was faithful to you throughout my manhood. I'm living in my old age. I was faithful to you until this day. And is this what I get for it? Haven't I suffered enough being torn from my family as a youth and my homeland? God, I can already feel those fangs yanking my arm out of its socket. I can already feel those claws ripping my stomach wide open. I can see those teeth closing around my face. God, is that the last sight I'm ever going to see in my life? God, save me. I don't know if that was his prayer or not. But it was not the end of his prayer. It says Daniel prayed and gave thanks. And I see in that a sign of Daniel's surrender. Even though he knew the inevitable, he was thankful. And I can imagine his prayer was, God, I just thank you that no matter what happens, I still know that you're in control. And God, thank you that, that I can trust in you. And thankful that you've been faithful to me all my life. And thank you that even in this situation, I know your faithfulness will never end. And that you are faithful today. I see in that prayer his surrender. What about Jesus' prayer? 
Matthew 26, 44, and preceding that verse, gives the account of Jesus praying. It says he left them and went again and prayed the third time. We know that Jesus' prayer was a prayer of agony. He told his disciples, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And as he prayed, he cried, Abba, Father. I think in today's words it would be, Daddy, Father. He says, all things are possible to you. Father, I, I, I know you can deliver me from this. It's possible. And in his humanness, Jesus may have cried, Father, I, I feel the rejection of the very people I came to save. I feel the indescribable weight of bearing every despicable sin ever committed by man on my shoulders. And that weight is even greater than the weight of my body hanging on those nails on the cross. As he was praying, his agony was so great that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood running off him and dripping to the ground. And as he was sweating this tremendous sweat on this cold night, just a few hours later, people were building a fire to stay warm. People were standing around the fire. On this cold night, he was sweating, as it were, drops of blood. Three times he went back to his disciples, and not once did one of them say, Jesus, what happened? What's wrong? If they said anything, they just murmured a few words in their drowsiness and went back to sleep. Like Daniel, he was left to endure his agony alone in prayer with God. Let's move on to the next comparison. Number 11, it was while they were praying that they were found by their enemies. Daniel 6, verse 11, Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. He was caught in the act of praying, which is a wonderful way to be found. Jesus, Luke 24, 45 to 47, the other account in the garden, when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, behold, a multitude and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. He was found in that place where he had been praying. Where are people most likely to find you? Are they likely to find you praying? If somebody can't find you, where do they go to look for you? Do they look where they know you're likely to spend time praying? Daniel was found praying. Jesus was found in the garden where he had been praying. I was reminded of Christopher Dock. When he died, he was found on his knees in his classroom where he had been praying for his students. I was reminded of David Livingston who, who was found dead. He too died alone. And he was found kneeling by his cot there in the heart of Africa. Let us live in communion with our Father. Let us as Daniel, and as Jesus, never be ashamed to be found praying. Comparison number 12. They were both betrayed by one of their own. Daniel chapter 6, quoting from several different verses. 
Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. You see, Daniel was one of the presidents. He was one of the presidents, and yet it was the presidents who betrayed him. Sorry, I forgot to put that verse up. It was one of the presidents who betrayed him. He was betrayed by one of his own. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. We well know that Judas was part of the circle of associates that Jesus had, to, had chosen, and yet he was the one who betrayed him. Comparison number 13. Both of these men suffered under man-made laws. Daniel chapter 6, verse 12 says, Then they came near and spake according to the law. These are the presidents and the princes that came to, to King Darius. And this was a law that was intentionally designed to go against God's people and to go against Daniel in particular. And he suffered under this law. John chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews answered him, speaking of Pilate, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by our law, he ought to die. Note that the Jews were not necessarily referring to God's law. They said, we have a law, and by our law, he ought to die. These men had an agenda, and they misconstrued God's laws to accomplish their purposes. At this point, they were not worried in the least about God's law. They were not worried about what God said. Their singular intention was to get rid of Jesus. And they misconstrued the laws and formed their own laws and interpreted their laws in an effort to do that. The law that was written, number 14, the law that was written could not be changed. And it didn't matter how much it hurt anyone. That law could not be changed. In verse 12 of Daniel 6, the king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which ordereth not. And when these princes and presidents told the king what happened, his, his whole outlook suddenly changed when he realized that he had been caught in this trap. And it says that the king set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. These men came and reminded him, at the end of the day, the decree cannot be changed. You don't have a choice. There's no way around it. The law has to be carried out. Daniel has to go. There was a law. And according to that law, Daniel had to go. And that law was not going to change. That's not the only law that's not going to change. There is another law. A law that has been established by God. And that law states that the wages of sin is death. And there's no one here that's going to change that law. That law is unchangeable, and it doesn't matter who it's going to hurt. That law will not change. The penalty of sin has to be paid. Blood had to be shed. There was no other way. Jesus cried to his Father, If it be possible, let this pass from me. Later he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think those cries hurt the heart of God. I think they hurt him just as much as the cries ringing in King Darius' ear 
that says the decree may not be changed. I think that cry hurt the heart of God even more than the cry hurt the king's ear. The king spent a sleepless night thinking about Daniel. God's heart was gripped no less by this law that the wages of sin is death. And I believe at this moment in history, his attention was riveted on his son until he could bear to watch no longer with the pain of what was taking place filling his father's heart. Well, people tried. Next comparison. Number 15, earthly powers failed to stop the evil that was planned. Daniel 6, verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. John 19, verse 12, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. Here again, we just see this comparison, point after point, carrying through. Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. King Darius tried. Pilate tried. As badly as they wanted to stop this evil train that was barreling down the tracks. Both men failed. You see, God had a plan. And his plan was going to prevail. But the feeble efforts of these men did nothing, absolutely nothing, to preserve the lives of men or to stop the evil that was happening. And I think this is a very pertinent reminder for us today in 2020, in the first week of November, in these very volatile times, not to put our trust in a man. Not to put our trust in a political atmosphere or a political party. I'm sure glad Daniel was not depending on Darius to deliver him. I'm glad Jesus was not depending on Pilate to deliver him. And I'm glad we do not need to depend on a certain man to bring God's will on this earth and in our country. If our trust is in a man, be assured that we can count on failing. Just a couple of verses that I'll mention that go along with this. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 7. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and in whose hope the Lord is. The story of Daniel and the story of Jesus are both success stories because these men placed their trust in God and not in man. Moving on to the next comparison, number 16. Even though the earthly powers failed, they recognized the omnipotent power of God. Daniel 6, verse 16. Find it interesting, this pagan king, this heathen king, as Daniel was being carried to the lion's den, now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. What a statement of faith. Was there any believer in God who made that statement at that point? Obviously, Darius was a believer of sorts. But was there any of God's people who would have dared to make that statement? 
Darius, even an earthly, even a, a heathen king, recognized the power of God. Matthew chapter 27, verse 43. Jesus was hanging on the cross. And these men that were standing there watching cried out, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. Now I recognize that Darius was expressing faith in God. These Jews were mocking Jesus. They were not expressing faith. This was a statement of mockery. Let him deliver him now. See if he can deliver him. However, they were making a statement that was true. And they're both an example that God can even use those who do not trust in him to lift up his name. And I'm confident he can do the same today. So Daniel is in the lion's den. Jesus is on the cross. Evil prevailed. It looked like they were winning. Number 17. In the eyes of men, their fate was sealed and the story was over. Daniel 6, verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den and the king sealed it. There was nothing more to be done. There was no more hope in from a human perspective. Matthew chapter 27. He rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone. Did you ever notice that comparison before? The stone that was laid over their position where they were. Those stones that were sealed. Men can make the best of plans. Sometimes they plan elaborate intricate details to accomplish their purposes. But as Robert Burns says in his poem, the best laid schemes of mice and men often go askew. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. These men thought they had it all sewed up. But when we stand before an almighty God, our most elaborate of plans is nothing more than what a mouse can do. The greatest stone on earth can do nothing to stop the hand of God at work. No politician, no king, no governor can stop the hand of God. Men thought the story was over. The next comparison, number 18, in the silence of the night, in the darkest hour, God was doing his work. It was nighttime. Daniel chapter 6 verse 19 says the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste onto the den of lions. He had spent a sleepless night. He couldn't sleep. The suspense was too great. He could wait no longer. He recognized that Daniel had an, uh, an omnipotent God. Did he work a miracle? Was death defeated? Was victory awaiting? He, he just couldn't wait. He rose very early in the morning. Do you recognize those words? Very early in the morning. Mark chapter 16, verse 2, and very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came onto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. These people had spent an agonizing Sabbath. It was anything but a day of rest for them. Morning was coming. Victory was coming. No, they didn't understand what was coming. But they still had faith. 
And they ran to the tomb in the wee hours of the morning. Yes, Friday was a dark day. And there were dark nights in between, but Sunday was coming. God was doing his work during the night. And the last comparison I have listed here, and there are more comparisons, but I needed to stop somewhere, and you can, I'm sure you can find more. It's very interesting. Number 19, there is victory. The king came early in the morning, skipping over some of the details in the account. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No manner of hurt was found on him because he believed in his God. There was victory. Mark chapter 16, verse 16, jumping ahead in the count. So then after the Lord had spoken unto him, he was received up out of their sight and sat on the right hand of God. Daniel resumed his place of preeminence in the kingdom. Jesus was given a place of preeminence in the kingdom at the right hand of God. For Daniel, this was the end of the earthly story. As far as what's recorded in the scripture, the last verse of the chapter says, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius. And then the preceding chapters go into his prophecies. There was ultimate victory for Daniel over his enemies. And I'm not going into the comparisons of judgment and so forth there. Like I said, there's much more that could be brought out here. For Jesus, there was victory. Concerning his conflict with the Jews of his day, it was the end. The end of the story, just like it was a victorious end for Daniel. There was nothing more the Jews could do. Jesus had risen. He had lived. He had walked on this earth. He walked among men. He ate with men. He spoke with men. And he ascended into heaven. He was beyond their reach. He was victorious. But that is not the end of the story for Jesus. He will come again to claim his own. Eternity awaits. Glory awaits. I'd like to read one of the last verses in, in Daniel chapter 6. These are the words of King Darius in reference to God in his eternal uh, dominion, eternal kingdom. Darius says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Do you tremble and fear before the God of this power today? For he is the living God and steadfast today forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth. And he worked the signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. There is victory. 1 Corinthians verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 26. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do, what's the next words? Show forth the Lord's death till he come. We're looking at the victory of Jesus when he rose from the grave. But we're looking beyond that. We're looking at the ultimate victory. We're looking at Christ's return. I repeat, the story is not over. 
The chapter that took place 2,000 years ago ended in victory. But the greatest victory is still ahead. And this evening, as, as we partake together in this holy experience, let us remember. But let us also look forward. Look forward with joy. Look forward with confidence. Look forward with hope. Look forward with anticipation to that ultimate victory. And let us not be distracted by the cares of this world that would turn us away. 800 years before the time of Christ, Daniel was already living in the shadow of the cross. As he faced those lines, the crosses were there, and he was living in that shadow. Today, 2,000 years have passed since Jesus died on the cross, but we are still living in the shadow of the cross. We are still living in the reality of the cross and of what Jesus has done. And it was not a shadow of defeat. It was a shadow of victory. Victory past, victory present, and victory to come. Just as Daniel was looking ahead, let us continue to look back to the cross and look ahead to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are able to, I invite you to stand for a prayer. Lord, again, we're reminded this evening of the wonderful account of Jesus and what he has done for us. As the forces of evil in this world were cast against him. But God, your, your plan prevailed, and there's nothing that can stop you from accomplishing your purpose. Thank you that we can have that same confidence today that we can look to you. Lord, I thank you for the love of Jesus. I thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. I thank you for the blood of Jesus, for the body of Jesus, what it means to us here today. And I pray that as we partake in this experience together, that it could take on a new meaning and that we could live in the daily anticipation, as Daniel lived in daily anticipation, we could live in daily anticipation of joining you in the Holy Jerusalem. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat>